0: We love to also bless our young ones as they and their teachers go because they get to read and hear from the Word of God and so do we. And we have been looking through the whole Gospel of Mark and uh, if you haven't joined us in a while we are almost at the end. In fact next week will be our final uh, message in the series of Mark. And so last week we looked at the, uh, the crucifixion. Today we are looking at the passage that recounts the, um, the the death and the burial of Jesus. Next week is the resurrection. But you know, uh, I've been talking with uh, just some people about last week's message and about the power of the cross, and so I actually wanted to have one of our deacons, if Bill would come up, Bill Person is going to come up, and I wanted to just share with you something that God put on his heart uh, regarding uh, the cross. And uh, I think it will bless you as well as, as it Also a good way uh, to remind us of what we talked about last week and how our focus this week will be on the death and burial of Jesus. So, Brother Bill, if you would share with us now, please.
1: As you see, I've been doing little things around the church, and we've discussed the cross in the front of the church, of trying to make it more modern, that uh, instead of just having a spotlight on it, but to show the cross. So... Fred and I took it down, and in the, in the process of doing it, something hit us pretty hard. We worked out there, it was very difficult to take down the dirty cross that was up there. It was dirty, it was moldy, and we thought, isn't that the truth about the cross? We took it down, and we carried it, and it was very heavy. It is a very big cross and we carried it in and we put it on the horses and we cleaned it. And as we cleaned it, we thought about the burdens and the sins we're washing away from the cross. It was very powerful. We got done with the cross and we carried it. It seemed to be so much lighter when we carried it out that it seemed like we had left everything behind. We carried it out. And then as we hung it, it just seemed to go up so much easier than when we brought it down. And when we hung it up, and then I set it up and wired it, and all we could think about is there's the light of Jesus shining from the cross. So Fred and I were just blown away by just the thought of being able to carry a cross. And it's I don't think it'll ever happen again in my lifetime. And it just it just hit us very deeply. So I just wanted to share it with you all. So anytime you want to go by at night, take a look at the front of the church because it really does show. So thank you very much.
0: Such a powerful image, the cross. We talked about it last week. And now the cross on the front of the church is lit up. And these men, they had to carry it in. And what symbolism as well. Because doesn't Jesus tell us that if we want to follow him and be his disciples, that we are to deny ourselves and do what? To take up our cross. You know, a few weeks ago, we had the privilege of seeing a, a brother be baptized. And that is one of the two uh, things that Jesus instructed his church to do. To baptize one another and to remember him around the Lord's table. And we're going to do that today. But you know, the symbol of baptism is so powerful as well from what you just heard. That when somebody goes under the water, it represents the death and burial of Jesus, but us along with him that we are willing, as Jesus was willing, to go to the cross. His death and burial that we look at today represents our willingness. Are we willing to surrender our lives to him? We believe in him, but then what we do is we say, yes, we want to be disciples. We want to be his followers. And yes, we are willing to deny ourselves and to carry that cross. But how beautiful it is as we sang the beautiful name of Jesus we look at that old, rugged cross, and we see the guilt and the shame that was up there, but Jesus is no longer on the cross. Do you see, and that's where we're headed. But what a great and powerful testimony that, yes, we do as a church, we have crosses, we have them around. Some of us we carry them on our neck, or we have them tattooed on our arms, or we, we have them, you know, in our Bibles as a bookmarker, and it's a reminder of the power of God over sin. But yet today, in our passage, it's the focus of that sin. As Brother Bill said, that sin that in a way in his mind and Fred, that it had marred that cross and the cross was old and moldy and it was falling apart and it needed to be refreshed. But what a a great reminder that in Christ, he took upon himself all of that sin all of that guilt and all of that shame that we were supposed to take and through his blood that he willingly gave on our behalf we are now washed clean do you believe that you're washed clean in the blood of christ see and that's our hope that's our great hope it cost jesus everything we talked about it last week but for us It's a free gift. Did you know that? That salvation is a free gift of God because Christ paid the cross, see? He paid the price on the cross and that's as simple as that. That we are then called to believe. Do we then believe? Are we persuaded? Are we convinced that Jesus is who he says he was, that he would do what he said he was going to do? And if we believe, it says we have our sins washed away. Today, we look at Mark 15, 33 to 47. It's the end of Mark 15. And it is the account of Jesus' death on the cross and then his burial. Because our last message was all about the crucifixion, and this is sort of the end of that crucifixion. It is Jesus, the moment of his death, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we see the burial of Jesus, also incredibly significant and important. But then we'll just see, just briefly in our time together today, what do we glean from this? What does it mean to us in 2019 that Jesus actually died and was buried? What's the significance there to us? And how are we to leave this place changed and different and transformed because of the truth of God's word? You know, um, we had this long weekend, right, Because most of us did because of the Fourth of July holiday on a Thursday, and hopefully you enjoyed your time. And we've kind of entered that, that summer weather pattern, right, where there seems like every day there's like the 50% chance of thunderstorms, right? You see that and you look at your weather app. So we had, some, we had some friends over on Friday and we wanted to go to the beach and none of them live down this way and so we wanted to go to the beach and so we did and even though it was a little bit cloudy, we said, no, we're going to go and so we went. We were having a wonderful time and we were there for about an hour and we we're all just sitting around and just enjoying it. We looked behind us and there were these dark, ominous clouds. It was about four o'clock on Friday. I don't know if you happen to remember that. And we looked at over the land and they were as dark as, as dark could be. And they were just coming. And it was pretty light out over the ocean. We could tell they were coming. So we all started asking, should we leave? Should we go back and pack up and and get all of our stuff and start heading back? And and so a friend of mine, he's got this app. And you know how today there's an app for everything? Is that right? There is, right? I mean, how do we live without apps? I don't know. There's an app for everything. How do you find the, the best apps? Well, there's an app for that too, right? And so... He says, I have this great weather app. It's called Dark Skies. Did you ever hear of it? If you don't have it, yeah, I'm like doing a promo for it. It costs like three bucks, I think, uh, when you download it. It's just one time. But supposedly he said it's the best weather app he says really great and he's a golfer and so he uses it all the time when he's out and he knows like if it's going to rain is there going to be lightning and he knows how much more he can play and so he swears by it right and he says yeah so he's looking at it and another friend of ours said oh I have that too and they're looking and it says it doesn't say it's going to rain and then we're looking at these dark skies the app is called dark skies we're looking at these dark ominous clouds it looks like it's going to rain. From experience, it looks like it's about to just, the skies are going to open up. And he's looking at it and says, no, so it Says, just cloudy, it's not going to rain. So we're looking around at each other saying, well, I, I think we're just going to trust the app. And we're going to, now wait for it though. And so, so he said, okay, we're going to stay. And sure enough, not one drop of rain. And those dark clouds came and they just kind of faded off into the distance. We spent another two hours on the beach and it was beautiful. And of course, the whole time home, he was like, see, I told you, see, it's the best app, you got to trust it, you got to trust it. But I have to say, like, you know, seeing those dark clouds roll in, you know, we've all had that experience, right? And there's something about darkness that really gets to us, and maybe we can't even explain it, but there's like a, a darkness. Remember when you were a kid and you were like alone in the dark? It's like the worst place to be. And some of us, we still have that fear, of being alone in the dark. Why? Because you can't see anything. You have no perspective. You don't know what's going on around you, right? There's some kind of monster ready to, to come out and get you, and, and you're all alone. And so here we were on the beach. We see these dark clouds coming, and it was so ominous. It was like impending doom, you know, like right before the skies were going to open up. It was imminent. Well, in our passage today, I'm going to read it in a second. Just notice the word darkness. I think it's part of the whole crucifixion story that we might kind of just kind of gloss over or forget about. But today, you know, there's so much in this passage. I want to focus on the darkness and the light that comes after the darkness. So I want to read it. Just keep that in mind as our perspective. The power and significance of darkness during the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. So here's what it says in Mark 15, to 47. It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. If you do the math, that's three hours of darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top. To bottom, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. But there was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. But when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And that's our reading for today. We're going to see Jesus' death and the darkness that surrounds it. And then we want to look at these people that Mark mentions. There's a handful of people that Mark mentions that witnessed this. And there were some powerful things going on with them. So as I just kind of talk through it and highlight a few things, will you just keep in mind This context of dark and light and the power of light to overcome the darkness. But first, let's look at that darkness. See, darkness was a sign of God's judgment all the way back from the Old Testament. The people that were there at the cross, they would have known something was about to happen. When we see dark skies roll in and those ominous clouds, don't we know that something is about to happen? That rain is about to pour down, that the wind is going to kick up, there might be lightning and hail. Just think about that. They all recognized that that meant judgment. Darkness was a sign of judgment, especially in the Old Testament scriptures. Even, even in Amos 8 9, it says that uh, prophesied that God would make the sun go down at noon. And here it happened. From noon until three on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, there was this unnatural darkness. Do we remember that, church? This was the middle of the day. It was from about noon until three o'clock. Does the sun go down at noon? Does it get completely dark at noon? No, it might get darker because of clouds, but it says a darkness. This was even darker than the darkest storm clouds. It said darkness just came over The whole land. So let's try to get some things straight here, right? So we often, we read Bible stories, don't we? We have images that we just kind of place in our head about what was happening. It was not just dark over Golgotha, over the hill. It said the whole land. In the original language here in the Greek, you know what that means? All of Palestine, all of Israel, all of that area, darkness for miles and miles and miles. Do you remember a time in the Old Testament where there was darkness that came over the land that represented judgment? Do you remember in the book of Exodus? Remember with the plagues? We've all seen the movies. We've all read it, right? With Moses and Pharaoh and all of the plagues? Remember what it says in Exodus 10, 21-23? Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. That there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. How about that? How do you feel darkness? A darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They didn't even see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Do you remember that part of the story? Can I read that again? There was darkness for three days, pitch darkness. They couldn't even see each other, but all the people of Israel had light wherever they lived. Isn't that great? What does that remind us of? That there is darkness. It represents God's judgment. Something is about to happen, but light overcomes the darkness. That God had a light for his special people at that time of Israel. It said that all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Amazing. Elsewhere it says in, um, it says in John 3.13. We all know John 3.16, right? John 3.13 says this about darkness and light. It says, this then is the judgment, right? It says, the light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because of their evil deeds. See, what it's reminding us of is this, that in our sin, we loved the darkness. Now, we might think to ourselves like, well, I remember being, you know, I remember when it was, um, before I was a Christian, before I was a believer in Jesus, I don't remember loving darkness, but yet the Bible says we were enemies of God. You know that? Before Christ, before we placed Our trust in him and and accepted by faith, the gift of salvation. The Bible says that in our sin, we loved darkness. That that was our default position, see? Before Christ, our default position was towards sin, towards darkness. Hey, when we sin against God, when we are disobedient, don't we try to hide it? I mean, we don't just tell everybody, right? Yeah, I sinned. We hide it. Why? We try to hide it where it's dark so that nobody can see it, but God can see through the darkness. He gave a light to the people of Israel, and he gives us a light in Jesus Christ. So in the midst of the three hours of complete darkness while Jesus was on the cross, the last three hours of his earthly life before he breathed his last, Mark says, there was complete darkness, but Jesus, you see, was in the process of bringing the light. But the darkness, let us no, no mistake about it, the darkness was God's judgment. But that judgment, yes, it was for those who were rejecting Christ. Remember all the people that were ridiculing him, that were making fun of him, that were taunting him? The judgment was on all those rejecting him. But let's not forget. Even as we gather around the table of the Lord today, the judgment of God was on his very own son, Jesus. That judgment was for us. That judgment was for us. But in those moments, Jesus took upon himself all of that. Can you imagine the weight? When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember we talked about the torture and and, um, everything that happened in the crucifixion? It started there. All of his suffering, of the suffering servant, when he started sweating drops of blood. Of course, when he asked the Father, let the cup pass from me. Yes, he didn't want to to be whipped. He didn't want to have a crown of thorns on his head. He didn't want to be nailed to a cross. But see, church, it was much more than just the physical abuse that he was about to take. As horrific as it was, what was Jesus so anxious and so fearful of in the garden that he even asked the Father, if the cup could pass by me? It was separation from the Father. It was the impending darkness that would come that would represent that judgment that for those moments in time and history would separate Jesus from the Father. You think about that for a moment. For eternity past, because God has no beginning, Jesus was with God. Face to face. How often in Scripture are we told to seek the face of God? Right? What does that represent? Our closeness with Him, our relationship with Him, that we are to seek His face. For eternity past, God the Son was face to face in a perfect relationship with God the Father. And Jesus in the garden knew this was coming. He knew the dark clouds were rolling in and said it was a pitch darkness that God allowed over that land, representing his judgment on his Son because he took upon himself all of our sin and disobedience. So the judgment was on Him. Isaiah 53 says this, that the Messiah would be pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. A punishment for our peace was on Him and we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. The Lord God, the Father, has punished Jesus, the Son, for our iniquity. And then Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark included it in the Aramaic, and he translates it for us. Why have you forsaken me? But even in that cry out, Jesus is recognizing who God is. My God, my God. You are my God. Even as he struggled to breathe his last breaths, he recognized the sovereignty of the Father God. But he even said, why have you forsaken me? A question I don't think we can even wrap our minds around, church. I mean, Jesus knew what he was doing, but he still asked for the cup to be passed. He gets on the cross and he knew what was about to happen. He knew what needed to happen, but he still cried out in anguish, why have you forsaken me? Do You know what that word forsaken means? It means to be separated. Why have you left me all alone? Can you imagine? I remember the loneliest of Jesus, the loneliness started back in the garden, really, in this whole narrative of Jesus' last couple of days. Because the disciples left him, they denied him. Everybody left and he was all alone even between him and god he recognized that sin could not enter into god's presence the holy and righteous and perfect god could not look at sin so if jesus became sin there had to be that separation does that make sense there had to be a forsaking a moment of loneliness where jesus no longer was face to face with the father can we just think about that for a moment? How often did Jesus in his time on earth say to the disciples, I need to go and be with my Father. And he would go to a quiet place and spend time in prayer with his Father. See, he had had that for all eternity, and he knew what was about to happen. Why have you left me alone? Why did it need to be like this? It was because of our sin and disobedience. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve, but here it is at the climax of it all, God allowing Jesus to be that one perfect Passover lamb. You see the darkness back in Exodus in Egypt during the Passover. There is darkness here as the perfect lamb of God is taking away the sins of the world. So he cries out, did you know that When he cries out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting from Psalm 22. The very beginning of the psalm, it says that, why have you forsaken me? Look at that, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I referenced this last week. To to put a, a note in the margin of your notes of your Bible, read Psalm 22. There are so many prophecies and things in Psalm 22 that are fulfilled in the whole crucifixion narrative. The whole crucifixion and death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 22. So perhaps when Jesus was crying out, we knew it was a cry of anguish because he was about to be separated, no longer face to face with the Father as he had enjoyed for eternity past but also perhaps as one last way to tell the people there in front of him, the witnesses, which we'll look at now. Remember Psalm 22. Remember, church, that the vast majority of people there, they were Jewish people. They would have known Psalm 22. When he cried that out, they would have known, wait, this is Psalm 22. Perhaps in a way, I don't know, it's conjecture, perhaps in a way he was pointing them back to the truth of God's word, the the truth they should have known, like saying, go back, I'm about to breathe my last read, Psalm 22, and you'll be convinced that everything that's happening was supposed to happen. It's God's will. Even quoting Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before that event. But even up until his final breath, we see Jesus was enduring ridicule and rejection. They even tried to give him some sour wine. you know they weren't giving it to him to refresh him? Remember, it says that they, some of them thought it was Elijah because there was this tradition, this thought that Elijah in times of trouble would come back to bring comfort to the Jewish people if they were suffering. And so they were basically taunting it. They were like testing it, saying, hey, let's keep him alive a few minutes longer to see if Elijah does come and take him down from the cross. So Jesus is quoting the true word of God, and yet people are misusing the word of God and what it says about Elijah. All of that was happening, and darkness had covered the land. And then it tells us, when he breathed his last, it said, the veil or the curtain of the temple was torn into, verse 38, from top to bottom. You probably heard that mentioned before. But if you haven't, or if you have and you need a reminder, here's why that's significant. You see, in the temple, right, there were different courts, there were different sections, and in the middle, where the only the one priest would go once a year, was called the Holy of Holies. You've heard of that, right? And that's where God dwelt. And so once a year, the high priest would go in, and offer a sacrifice in representation on behalf of all the people. But that is where God dwelt. And so there was a curtain, a very thick, a very thick fabric curtain that would separate the holy place from the holy of holies. And it says that curtain was torn. Now we also, from research, know that at that time there was probably a service going on in the temple so there would have been priests and others seeing this happen that this very thick curtain that separated out where god was that nobody dare go that was then torn in two now who tore that curtain god did how do we know it was torn from top to bottom see god tore that curtain why Because that curtain separated all the people from God's presence. Because of what Christ did on the cross when he breathed his last, we know elsewhere it says, he said, it is finished. A cry of declaration, but also of promise and hope. That curtain was torn from top to bottom, torn in two. And What happens when you tear a curtain and now it's open? Now everyone had access to the Holy of Holies. Can you imagine? So what does that mean for us sitting right here today? That means, church, that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient payment for that sin that separated us from God. Like the curtain representing that sin that separated us from God's presence, we are now reconciled through Christ and Him alone. That's why we preach that salvation is by grace through faith, but in Christ alone. It's only Him and His blood that made that possible, for that curtain to be torn in two. Are we together? Right? is that amazing? And there is the truth of the gospel, the powerful truth, and it says it right here, that that curtain was torn in two, which means that we now can pray to the God of the universe. You ever just think about that? When you go to pray, you close your eyes, and we can just talk to God? And it doesn't have to be any special, like, long prayer? Anything like special words, we just come to God with reverence and humility and we can just talk to the God who created the sun and the stars. I mean, we can't even fathom that. But yet that's the truth. But therein lies the freedom. And that is the beautiful freedom that we have in Jesus because he took upon himself all that we were supposed to endure. And so now the pathway is freedom for us. There is hope in Christ, a hope that the world cannot offer, but only he can. A few more passage scripture, and then we'll move into the table of the Lord. Uh, it tells us in Hebrews, again, this is exactly what I'm talking about. In Hebrews 10:19 to 22, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, "...to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain." This is the writer of Hebrews recounting what we just read. "...by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience." and our bodies washed with pure water. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying, remember, remember, Christians, remember, believers, that we have a great high priest, one who endured all that we might even go through here in life, and it was because of him. His flesh was torn, his blood was given, and in the same way, that curtain was torn in two. It was Jesus' crucifixion on the cross represented then also in that curtain being separated in two so that we then have access. It was all because of Christ. I hope if nothing else you just remember that and have that image in your head. It was the darkness and the split curtain as signs that God poured out His wrath on His own Son. But He did it so there would no longer be a separation between us and him, We now have bold access to the God of the universe through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what that passage in Hebrews tells us, that we can come to God with confidence. Yes, humility, but with confidence before our God. You have confidence that you have a relationship with God through Christ? Do you live with that assurance and that hope? Because that's the hope and assurance that God gives us. And then briefly, there were some courageous witnesses at Jesus' death. I mean the centurion. The the centurion, a Roman centurion, would not have believed any of this. But then he saw what happened and he said, truly this man is the Son of God. He believed. There was the women. It says there were women who were watching. These women that had followed him and so many others So many women strong of faith and courageous women who were willing to step outside of the social boundaries of the time and say, we are going to follow this man because we believe that he is God. And so they were there witnessing the crucifixion. But you know, they were the ones that were able to give us an eyewitness testimony to all that we just read. And then we also see, we'll see it next week, That these same women were the first ones to recognize and discover the empty tomb. The first ones to see the risen Christ. Isn't that beautiful? It were these women who were faithful and bold in their faith. And then there was Joseph of Arimathea. Now he was what we call a secret disciple. See, he was a believer, but he, he still liked being a part of the Sanhedrin. He still liked being a part of that. You know, we can learn a lot from Joseph. That could be a whole uh, sermon right there. Joseph of Arimathea, that he was a leader. He believed, but he kind of held on to those worldly things that he liked, sort of the prestige and the power. But at the moment of the crucifixion, something must have happened because he then went to Pilate of all people and asked for the body of Jesus. So it was at that moment that he was basically saying, no, I don't care anymore. People are going to know that I'm a follower because he was going to Pilate and others would have known that he was doing this. So he was making a public declaration by that act and Pilate gave it to him. It's interesting, right? Pilate gave him the body. That would not happen to criminals who were crucified, But remember when we saw Pilate, he never truly believed that Jesus was guilty, but he gave in to the will of the crowds. So here he just willingly gives over the body to Joseph of Arimathea, who put him in a a tomb, it says, carved out of rock. And then Joseph of Arimathea, he rolled this big stone in. There would have been a divot, and he rolled it into the divot so it would stay there. Joseph of Arimathea was bold in his faith because of the crucifixion. These women were bold in their faith, being out there publicly, not caring that people would know that they were followers. The centurion, even with others around him, his brothers in arms, other Roman soldiers, and he said, truly, this is the Son of God. Have you had that moment in your life? People have been sharing the gospel with you and sharing the truth about Jesus, and there's a moment of truth where you have to make that decision, yes, I believe. I am convinced and persuaded that this is the truth. And the scriptures simply say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you believe. But it's a bold proclamation because from that point on, you're identifying yourself with Christ, just like these handful of witnesses did. There was darkness, the darkness was the judgment. The judgment of God that came upon those who didn't believe, but it came upon his very own son, Jesus. That judgment. And it was dark. Why was it dark for Jesus? What happens when we're in the dark? We can't see. We can't see when we're in the dark. It said back in Exodus when there was that pitch darkness that people couldn't see each other. It was dark for Jesus in his soul. Why? He was in complete anguish, and he knew this moment was coming, that he would be separated momentarily from the Father, who he had loved to gaze upon for eternity past, that he now could not see because of the darkness of judgment. But yet because he took that judgment and that darkness upon himself, there would then be light, because he is then called the light of the world. Do you know that we then in Scripture who identify with him are called to live in the light because he is the light. We once loved darkness in our sin, but we are now children of light. Do you realize that? That you are a child of light and you are to live no longer in the darkness, loving the darkness, but live as a child of light. Because that judgment came and it says there's no longer judgment. Who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. See, Jesus, I end with this, Jesus was forsaken so that we will never have to be forsaken, never be left alone by our God. So it was our sin that Jesus took. You know, there's this beautiful picture here. Some of you are probably wondering where that came from. If you were with us at our event On that Sunday night when we had a painting Freedom here, this was the painting that the artist did in the last moments of our gathering. And it's a wonderful depiction. And I love how we just see the picture of of what's supposed to be Jesus, right? He's got the crown of thorns and the blood coming down as we described that Sunday. But yet there is the word hope. We don't often connect the two, but we only have hope in this world because of that, because of what happened. And so we we are now gathering around this table and this is how we close out our time. We call it communion, we call it the Lord's table. It's when we remember. It says right even if you can see it, carved into the wooden table in remembrance of me. Jesus said, "Do this in remembrance of me." And that's why we're doing it. He says as often as you get together, do this. This is what he told the church to do. He said, Do what I'm about to do. Remember at the last supper, he broke the bread and he passed the cup and he said, this bread represents my body, which is given for you, and the cup represents my blood. It's a new covenant in my blood. And often as you get together, eat the bread, drink the cup until he returns. So that's what we're going to do now. So I want to do that. So I want to pray. Pray for what we're about to receive. And then the elements will be passed to you, the bread and then the cup. They'll be passed to you. And, and as you just sit there, just in silence, just reflect on all that you heard today. Reflect on that and remember what Christ has done for you. Let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. And Lord, we pass these because you did and you passed them around your followers at the Last Supper, and so you tell us to do this in remembrance, and that's what we want to do. And so we do this in remembrance of you. Help us, Lord, to never forget. Always remember, but never forget. We do it for you, but Lord, use it in us as a powerful way, a powerful way to have that image emblazoned on our minds of Christ on the cross he did that for us. In Jesus name. Amen.